Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Well, he's back. Boris Johnson has returned to work in number 10. But who is really calling the shots? Is it the Prime Minister? But he says he's following the science. Is it the scientists? But they say they just advise politicians. What about the Cabinet, Parliament, the NHS, even the media? In today's episode, I'm joined by Chris Smythe, Whitehaller editor of The Times Economist, Rachel Sylvester, as we try to work out who is in charge here. Before that, you may have seen that changes are afoot here at Red Box Towers. I'm stepping back from writing the Daily Email to host the new mid-morning politics show on Times Radio when it launches in the summer. But fear not, this podcast will continue as part of the show. And my real aim is to take the best of the podcast onto the brand new radio station, including many of the same guests, reporters, columnists, experts, all the people who've walked the corridors of power that we normally bring you on the podcast to still take you behind the scenes and explain, hopefully, what is really going on. When Times Radio launches, it will be available on DAB, online, an app, smart speaker, all the usual places. Other names already confirmed on the schedule include John Pienaar, Kathy Newman, Stig Abel, Asmir, Luke Jones and Jenny Kleeman, with more to follow. So obviously, I'd love it if you'd join me every morning on Times Radio when it launches in the summer, but you'll still be able to get your fix here on the podcast. Fear not. So back to this week, and the boss is back. If this virus were a physical assailant, an unexpected and invisible mugger, which I can tell you from personal experience it is, then this is the moment when we have begun together to wrestle it to the floor. And so it follows that this is the moment of opportunity. This is the moment when we can press home our advantage. It is also the moment of maximum risk. So that was Boris Johnson delivering a speech outside Downing Street, his first major public appearance for a month uh, after he went into self-isolation with coronavirus himself. Rachel, let's start with you. What did you make of the speech that Boris Johnson gave outside number 10? I thought it was definitely very clear he's not going to follow the Tory MPs and donors who are asking for an immediate end to the lockdown. There were definitely, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel, but there was not an immediate hope of lifting the lockdown. When he talked about that virus as a mugger, you know, and his, he linked that to his own personal experience, he did say it's a moment of opportunity, but it's also the moment of maximum risk. And I felt there was a new sort of serious tone to what he said, and actually in the short statement he made on the day he left hospital. Uh, And it's as if he's sort of been brought up short by his own brush with death. 
uh, and that he now does realise that this is incredibly serious. I spoke to one cabinet minister over the weekend who said they thought he had been changed by his time in hospital and that he now realised how serious this was, but also had this emotional connection with the NHS in a way that David Cameron did also, having spent all those months sleeping on floors next to his son Ivan. To what extent do you think that will have an impact on what he's now doing, the decisions he's now making? Because obviously anyone who who has a brush with the NHS comes away saying, most of the time anyway, they come around saying, oh, aren't they marvellous? They're always so well looked after, their work is so hard, you know. But Boris Johnson being well looked after in a hospital doesn't automatically mean that it sort of changes his political outlook, or does it? Maybe maybe you think it does. Well, I think it will make him more risk averse. So he's always been the greatest gambler in Westminster, uh, and I just wonder whether this will make him more cautious. You know, there's less of jokiness. He just, it's only a few weeks since he was joking about the search for ventilators being called Operation Last Gasp. But he then found himself actually, his life dependent on one of these, uh, you know, with an oxygen mask at least, if not a ventilator. I think there's going to be less of that sort of lackadaisical approach. It's it's implausible that he now wouldn't turn up to COBRA meetings, as he we really didn't do to begin with. And also, he's always been rather sort of slapdash with the facts, this kind of Lord of Misrule figure. And now it's all about data, graph, statistics, uh, and analysing all of that. So I think he's, it's, um, this in the end, there's no right answer. All the ministers say it's all about the science and the scientists say it's about the political judgments. But in the end, it is a balance and it's about the trade-offs. And I just wonder whether it's going to tip, tip him to a slightly more cautious position. Let's bring Chris Smything now. Chris, you were the health editor of The Times for many, many years. And you thought late last year, excellent, I've, I've moved on from the health beat. You became Whitehall editor uh, and you moved to Parliament and you'd never have to write a health story ever again. It feels like that's all you've really done since you've moved uh, to Westminster. Yes, I, I did think the start of this year, you know, finally we've had, a, we've had an election. Things will, will calm down. We'll really get into some of the the deep policy detail and I uh, just deal with this weird virus thing that I'll, I'll get that out of the way and then, then we'll come to back. And obviously it didn't, it didn't quite work like that. And, uh, you know, it, in many ways, the answer to your, you know, the question of this podcast, who is in charge? Well, the virus is in, in charge. You know, we are all responding to the basic biological facts about that. And, you know, it's interesting what Rachel was saying about Boris Johnson's character. You know, he came to power as this great, you know, optimistic figure in the in a sort of a Brexit wars, which really a battle about selling sort of competing visions of the the future to the to the country. And and if you could convince people, you could sort of create your own uh, reality. Well, you know, the virus doesn't work like that. It is very much based on the sort of brute biological and epidemiological facts uh, and res- responding to those. And there are such huge uncertainties about those that it really makes those decisions astonishingly difficult. Let me take you back to January. Given, I mean, particularly health reporters, people in the sort of the health world, health officials, ministers and that sort of thing, the idea of a deadly virus sweeping the world, the sort of the the, the, the pandemic panic reports is a, is a sort of hardy staple, if you like, or had been of a certain type of sort of health journalism. Yeah. At what point did you go from thinking, oh, it's another one of those and, you know, the worst never happens to then thinking, oh, actually, this is this is the one that we always thought well, wasn't going to be. Well, well it's interesting. You know, yeah, pandemic has always been a sort of clear risk. It's been at the top of the risk register for years. But at the same time, there's so many false alarms on this. And, you know, it's it's 
one of those things where the media always likes to, to cry wolf on this kind of thing because people people read it and you you get a bit jaded as a health reporter about these things and you see a new virus in China you think this is interesting it's probably not going to be this one and then you saw in January well the Chinese are you know taking this very seriously taking some very drastic measures and then thinking well maybe that'll be the end of it like it was for for SARS or, or MERS before that and then. Then in February, by mid-February, by this time you started seeing all these outbreaks in Iran and particularly in, in Italy, it suddenly became clear, oh, no, this is not going to be something that is confined to health pages. This is going to, to come here and is going to be you know, a big problem for Britain. And on one level, the government did realise that too. And, you know, from a from a sort of health department perspective, the, the planning was really up and running there. And I think what nobody quite grasped there, well, you know, not many people grasped there, was the extent to which... This was not going to sort of come to us like swine flu had in 2009 when it was going to be a pandemic. It was going to be serious. Lots of people would get it, but ultimately we'd get through it and move on. But it would be something that would fundamentally change our way of life. Uh, and I think people were slow to grasp that, partly because the science was, was uncertain, partly because we hadn't yet seen the way Italy's health system was overwhelmed. But I think also partly it's just such an astonishing mental leap to make. If you think where we were in mid-February when people were talking about Pretty Patel's rows with her own department and uh, talking about, well, now what's next with Brexit and levelling up the North, you know, the idea of a, a virus confining us all to our own homes seemed like the, the, thrill of a, you know, the plot of a, a bad made-for-TV dystopian thriller. It was just difficult to take that prospect seriously for many people, I think. Do you think that's what happened in government? I mean, there's also been a lot of criticism of Boris Johnson for not um, attending those COBRA meetings that Rachel Sylvester was just talking about. But do you think they weren't gripped by Matt Hancock was chairing those COBRA meetings? They were happening. Was the government gripped by it? Were they distracted by other stuff? I mean, I suppose that there's a, there's two criticisms, two different criticisms that have been leveled at the government. One is that I was completely off the ball and they were distracted by other stuff, Brexit and half-term holidays and whatever else. And the other is that I was on the ball, but they just didn't think it was a very dangerous ball. When the inevitable public inquiry comes around, there were a lot of people who turned out to have you know, done something wrong that they could have perhaps done better. And to what degree that is hindsight and to what degree that's negligence is perhaps going to take a long time to to work out. But I think there was definitely planning going on. I think from a health point of view, this was taken quite seriously early on. But I think what, what the, the leap that was not made was to think this is not just a health issue. This is something that is going to transform the whole of government and indeed society and to start planning for that. Now, we don't know really yet uh, what planning or what wasn't going on for the on the very basic stuff like uh, you know, how many ventilators we'll need, what protective equipment staff would need, the testing capacity, that kind of thing. And, and you know, there will be lots of questions asked there. And, the, you know, the things you can point to don't start there. You could go back years and years and think, yes, the government's been told to plan for a pandemic. But it was always planning about flu when, you know, essentially the strategy is protect the vulnerable and let it pass through and we can all move on. You don't really need mass testing for flu. People didn't think that a coronavirus could cause a pandemic. I mean, Jeremy Hunt, obviously health secretary for a very long time, and now one of the government's sort of you know most acute critics on this has, has, has admitted that when he was health secretary, he just didn't think that a coronavirus could do this, and his pandemic, the pandemic planning that he oversaw, didn't really consider this. So you know there was perhaps a, a collective blind spot at that point where you know the very very basic laboratory science of virology meets the policy of planning, meets the politics of is this really something we're going to worry about when we've just won an 80-seat majority? We've got a society to transform and marginal seats in the north to to cement. And I think that the way those 
very different ways of thinking about the world overlap is really the, the gap into which this crisis fell. Rachel, one of the things that this crisis exposed on the, on the political side, we'll come to the science in a moment, was, I mean, this was essentially a government that was almost entirely about Boris Johnson. It was an election campaign for almost entirely on Boris Johnson. Most ministers were locked up during the election campaign. Actually, Matt Hancock was one of the few who was out and about, and maybe that gave him some decent enough practice, being one of the better performers. But it has exposed the shallowness of this cabinet, the lack of experience, the fact that the, the guy who was stepping in for the prime minister in his absence acting Prime Minister Dominic Raab was someone who'd got three or four months cabinet experience before becoming Foreign Secretary. Yeah, and the cabinet was shaped in Boris Johnson's image and also shaped, they were pointed really for their willingness to be obedient to Downing Street and jump when Downing Street said jump. When the Prime Minister was taken into hospital, suddenly there was this vacuum uh, and it, it became clear who was up to it and who wasn't. So actually, Rishi Sunak emerged as a really competent performer, impressive chancellor, immediately seized the moment, realised that something big and dramatic needed to happen. I'd say actually Matt Hancock did act quickly and with energy. You know, he got all those hospitals built. You can criticise perhaps the preparations on PPE and testing, but I think he did grasp the seriousness of the thing. Whereas other people, Dominic Raab, Pretty Patel, you know, <laughs> where where have they been, and, and what's the what is their sort of serious purpose in this pandemic? It's really struck me, particularly at those press conferences. It sort of separated the the wheat from the chaff, if you like. I was quite struck actually when Grant Shapps did one. Was it the end of last? I've lost all track of the days, obviously, because it's like Christmas. But um, end of last week or over the weekend, Grant Shapps did one of the press conferences. And was actually pretty good, and it it made me think. Actually, I was I was attending regional lobby briefings with Grant Shapps ten years ago when the Tories were in opposition, and I, I can't remember. What, I think it was Shadow Housing Minister or something. Yeah, he's been around the block a long time. He know you know, and actually sometimes just getting sort of uh, flying hours under your belt is what you need. And actually, some of the newer ministers, Dominic Raab potentially, I mean, Pretty Patel in particular. When confronted with something as massive as this, it's just not a very reassuring presence. Um, you know, unable to read out a six-digit number uh, seems to be too much for British Britain. And then uh, to boast that shoplifting has gone down uh, while failing to acknowledge it's because all <laughs> of the shops shopping, are shut. Exactly. <laughs> but also there's this sort of been a change in the balance of power because with the fact that the politicians have been flanked by the government scientists at all those press briefings, it makes it makes the sort of sense of authority and who's in charge very different. So, it, you know, you've had Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance as the authority figures in this crisis as much as the politicians. And I think that changes the dynamic. There is no such thing as the science, just as in politics, there's sort of differences of opinion within different branches of science, science and the scientific community. I was really struck last week, I interviewed two experts on the virus, Bill Gates and Anders Tegnell, who's the Swedish epidemiologist who's persuaded the Swedes not to go for a lockdown. Uh, and both of them use this word, this phrase that it could have been the worst of both worlds. Um, but they used it to mean completely different things. So Bill Gates said it was you could have had the worst of all worlds, that the economy was always going to be screwed, whatever happened, because people would have changed their behaviour, even if there hadn't been a lockdown. And Anders Tegnell said you could have had the worst of all worlds um, because people were always going to get sick anyway, even with a lockdown. It's not really going to make a huge amount of difference. I thought it was really interesting, these two experts with completely diametrically opposed views about the response to this virus using the same phrase to mean very different things. 
Chris, one of the things that we've done, I think, with the scientists, if you like, the worship of Chris Whitty in particular, from quite early on, people say, oh, I look into his eyes and I know that I can trust him and that sort of thing. We, we just want them to be right. And obviously, when the politicians say, well, we're following the science, they make it sound like we're following some, you know, the rules of long division, where you just follow it all through and at the end you get the answer. And obviously, it's more, much more complicated. Absolutely. It's not, it's not how it works. And you, know, you can see in the sort of deification of, of, of Chris Whitty, the sort of national yearning to have an authority figure who we trust, who isn't partisan, who we can believe in. And obviously, scientists and doctors always top the trust league when politicians and indeed journalists come at the bottom. You can see why people want to, to do that at a moment of crisis. They want someone to, to unite behind. And, and obviously, Boris Johnson being a quite a, a divisive figure, lots of people find it hard to, to do that. But scientists are both human and we are in a very uncertain situation. Many of the calls that the scientific advisors made in the early stage have come under a lot of scrutiny, questions about whether they're right. And you can see that is getting under their skin a little bit. And, and, and Chris Whitty, whenever he's challenged on, well, we U-turned, didn't we, in the middle of March, he'll say, no, no, we didn't, we didn't, when, you know, frankly, they did. And so they're starting to behave a little bit more like politicians as their, their <laughs> debates, their decisions come under scrutiny. But, you know, and, and as Rachel says, the, the science is, there is no such thing as the science. In, in an area where the science is absolute and unequivocal and, and unchallenged, it's not really science anymore. It's just a commonly accepted, uh, you know, fact. Uh, you know, the earth goes around the sun. That's not really science anymore. That's just that kind of basic. It's not any area where is an active area of research is going to involve disputes. And the scientists, I think, are quite comfortable with that. And, you know, Patrick Balance, the, the chief scientific advisor, has been quite open to the fact there are, there are lots of disagreements on SAGE, the scientific advisory group for emergencies. And he has talked about the process in which you try, he tries to bring those conflicting views together and present that to, to ministers. When we went into lockdown, I think essentially Boris Johnson never wanted to go into lockdown and he was sort of dragged into it both by public opinion, which was really swinging behind it, but also by a growing scientific consensus that there was no option. The decision on exiting lockdown is much, much harder because there is much less scientific certainty uh, and both uh, Patrick Vallance and Chris Whitty have been trying to emphasise in recent days, there is a hu- both a huge amount of uncertainty and many different ways you can you can do this. There's sort of a, both a big strategic choice of, you know, a very, very long lockdown that tries and eliminate the virus sort of China style or New Zealand style, and then trying to sort of manage our way through it with a sort of easing but not lifting of lockdown, like most other big European countries have done, which seems to be where we're going. But, you know, they are up front. We are engaged in a massive experiment here. We don't know what's going to work. Other Lots of different countries will try different things. They'll look at each other. They'll see what's working what's not. Uh, in some ways, it's helpful to us that we're probably a few weeks behind some of these countries because we can then see where they're going wrong and adjust to it. But we just don't know what the right thing to do is. Uh, and I, I think you know, it, it was probably helpful uh, both to the public and indeed for, for, politically for Boris Johnson to come out and say yesterday, you know, he wants to be transparent about this and uh, present this in public, which is what people have been calling for for a long time, because the only way he's going to get behind is by saying, look, you know, here are options. We don't really know which is the, the right one and w- where should we go? But you know, even that brings its own problems because, uh, as Chris Whitty hinted yesterday, there are really deep political judgments being made about doing it. You know, if you want schools to restart, that probably means less social life, less economic life. If you want to prioritise getting business going, well, maybe kids can't go back to school until June if we want to keep the epidemic under control. So how you make those trade-offs is inherently a 
a political choice. And also there are no good options. So this isn't a case, politicians love to present the palatable choice, but there isn't one really. It's a really difficult argument to make. It, it is. And I, it, the only thing to be said for it is that I think you know, all the polling shows that the public are still very scared of this virus, that, you know, they are not pushing for an early release of lockdown. And I think the government's own internal polling focus group suggests the same. They are still scared. And, you know, in many ways, as, 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 as Rachel, as you said about Bill Gates, well, you know, if, if the government says everyone goes back to work and all the workers say, absolutely no way am I going back to work, I'm still too scared, it, you know, that, that it's not going to work either. So they've got to take people with them if they're going to convince them there is a safe way to to move on to the next phase. And also there's a slightly mm. false choice made between lives and livelihoods where, you know, people say, oh, it's either all about stopping people getting ill or it's all about saving the economy. Actually, the problem could be that if if you lift the lockdown too soon, there's a second wave of the pandemic and the economy is doubly screwed in any case. So you get your double whammy. So it's not just, it's about timing really, rather than lifting or not lifting, I think. There's also, I suppose, the question of you could prevent some coronavirus deaths now if we stayed in lockdown for six months, but the impact that would have on the economy and the health impacts of a deep, long recession are well known, you know, off the back of austerity as well, that, you know, if people spend a lot of time on welfare, the impact that has on them uh, and their health outcomes. But, you know, because those are sort of slightly more abstract and distant deaths, they seem slightly less pressing than the immediate ones now, but you could end up in a situation where the the cure, the so-called cure, the lockdown, ends up costing as many lives as the as the coronavirus. You, you could, and, and that, that calculation is being made in, in government. I mean, it is a difficult calculation, and the number you come up with depends a lot on the assumptions you you put in. And if you're being cynical, you think, well, one of the reasons they haven't published that yet is that they want to be a bit clear about what number they want to to come out uh, of that in terms of justifying their decision. And if you wanted to be less cynical, you could say, look, it's just very uncertain. We know that. People are being harmed by the lockdown, both in the sense that cancer referrals are down by three quarters. You know, there are 2,000 cancer cases a week that are not being diagnosed because people aren't going to, to hospital. That's a very direct impact of lockdown. And then there's the much longer term impact on you know children growing up in poverty, parents who become unemployed. That does last their entire lives. Chris, you've touched on it there slightly with the NHS. This is probably a whole podcast we could have done at any point in the last probably 10 years. But who, who really is in charge of the NHS because Matt Hancock as obviously the health secretary has got his NHS badge on and he says the NHS is going to do x y and z but those of us who who lived through the Andrew Lansley reforms of almost a decade ago know that the health secretary isn't really in charge of the NHS so when there are arguments about where is PPE and who was whose fault is it if there isn't a stockpile or, or you know the bits are in the right place i mean we look to our politicians and ultimately they should be the ones who sort it out but it is incredibly complicated, isn't it? Who who actually runs that? The NHS? yeah, accountability in the health service is 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 spread around all over the place. And ultimately, no, Matt Hancock doesn't run the NHS. Sir Simon Stevens uh, runs the NHS. You know, he has spent a good uh, six six years sort of gradually establishing himself as a, you know, the person in charge in in a Lansley system, which really doesn't make it easy to work out who's in charge. He is clearly in charge. And indeed, you know, in the in the different world at the start of this year, I was writing stories about how number 10 were getting very frustrated that they weren't in charge of the health service and that they would tell Simon Stevens to do something and he wouldn't do it. And they were planning to, to change the law to give themselves more power. And obviously that has slightly gone by the board a bit. But no, they are, you know, he is in charge of running hospitals. But equally, he wasn't in charge of pandemic stockpiles. That was the Department of Health, ultimately the health secretary. So they can all point their fingers at each other and say, 
you know, this is uh, not my responsibility, it's yours. Uh, and that's even before you get to Public Health England, which is meant to be in charge of you know, protecting us from infectious diseases and is not part of the Department of Health or the, health, uh, or the NHS and is its own separate agency. And so there's plenty of space for butt passing and uh, finger pointing here. And then there's also the whole aspect of social care, which is funded by local government completely separately, when in fact the two systems really ought to be integrated. And is that's one thing that has become so clear through this pandemic, that it's very hard to draw that hard line. Uh, and the treatment of care workers being different to uh, health workers in the immigration system, for example, that the government's setting up, all of those issues, I think, really have to now be looked at. So I'm joined by Rachel Sylvester and Chris Smythe on the Red Box podcast. We'll be back with more after this. what about the role of accountability in all of this because it's quite easy to sort of throw criticism at the government and on their own promises, whether it's delivery of PPE, rolling out of testing in particular, they've clearly struggled to meet even what they said they were going to do. But it's been a very weird time for accountability in all this. We've had we had no parliament for a month. It's now back in a strange hybrid virtual form, but we haven't yet seen the prime minister back there. We've got a new leader of the opposition. Um, and instead, the accountability has fallen to journalists. And I'm sort of slightly nervous even asking this question, but how do we think the journalists have done and in all of this, because I mean, I'm sure all of us have had this in our Twitter timelines. There's nothing, nothing else. People saying that journalists have done a bad job, but sometimes they've just been asking the same questions again and again without success of getting answers. And then sometimes you find yourself screaming at the telly, thinking they've just answered that, or they've just told you why that's not right, and it's all a bit of a mess. What do you think, Chris? As somebody who's, in fact, you've asked a couple of questions at these virtual press conferences how do you think journalists have done well you know it's it's it it is quite varied i think there is a sort of adjustment that hasn't been universally made in terms of thinking you know what uh, is this uh, basically politics as normal where you're trying to sort of hold people to what they said and sort of point out inconsistencies because that that's an important part of the the normal process of, of, of accountability and sense that we're in a national crisis and actually quite a lot of people don't really you know, aren't really interested of do we you know can Matt Hancock meet his testing target or you know they don't care they just want to know are they going to 
get a test. And those slightly different audiences uh, perhaps have slightly different expectations of what the journalism is. And I mean, if you take the normal rule of politics, which is that the, you know, lots of people are, a very small group of people are fa absolutely fascinated and the vast majority of the population don't pay any attention at all. Well, that has obviously changed completely uh, during this crisis because politics isn't some abstract sport which entertains people in Westminster anymore. It is something which very directly and concretely means, can I walk out my front door today or not? So even before the lockdown, the, you know, the virus was the news story which was getting cut through far beyond any other story, you know, by an order of magnitude. Uh, and obviously, that has uh, since become the only story in town. People who don't normally follow politics are having to to follow it. And I think they're looking perhaps sometimes in a bit of amusement at the sort of rituals of Westminster, thinking, this, how is this helping me understand, you know, am I going to be able to see, see my grandchildren in the, the question of uh, Lynn's, uh, the, the, the first member of the public question to ask uh, Matt Hancock yesterday. So I think there's, a, there's different audiences who perhaps expect different things. And then that's even before you get to the sort of, uh, you know, Twitter star polarization of Brexit, which seems to mark overlaid on this crisis remarkably well, where people who oppose Brexit think the government's doing a terrible job and uh, were very lax and have killed thousands through their negligence. And those who uh, were supportive of Brexit think uh, they're doing a great job and should probably ease lockdown very quickly. And you, those groups overlap more than you might perhaps expect on the uh, objective facts. So I think there's a mixture of tribalism amongst uh, people who are really news junkies. And the fact this is vast new audience coming to political journalism, perhaps uh, for the first time and thinking, what am I getting out of this? There is a, a balance to be struck between holding the government account to what it did and didn't do in the preparation for this and thinking, well, actually, probably what most people want to know is, well, what happens next? When can I, when am I allowed to leave my house and see my family again uh, and getting that balance right I think we, we've struggled. Don't you think also that journalists have just been filling the vacuum that, and that now Keir Starmer is there as Labour leader in a way there's a real political opposition to hold the government to account and I thought at his first Prime Minister's questions and the comments that he's made so far he's got the tone quite quite right about you know broadly supportive of the government where possible but challenging mistakes on specific issues like PPE or testing which are the same issues that the journalists have been raising but now if he can you know, meticulously and forensically cross-examine Boris Johnson in the House of Commons, that's a much better forum for it in a way. And the indications are that he is likely to do that rather than sort of in the rather tribal way that Jeremy Corbyn did just sort of ranting at the government, picking particular subjects to go on. Yes, I think I think that's right. And he is obviously a much better both a performer than Jeremy Corbyn, but also, I mean, he is addressing these issues in what, you know, can be seen as a constructive way. And you can make a political argument about how it's, uh, you know, helps them attack the government to, but it, by being constructive, as it were, which, but that's a paradox of perhaps you don't need to, to get into if you're just an ordinary member of the public listening to this. You know, last week, his big thing was saying, you know, why are we not making enough PPE and releasing a long list of companies who'd have contacted the, the government uh, offering help and been ignored? Well, that's a very on one level, a very constructive uh, offer to say, look, you know, here are these companies who could help. Let's let's make things better. And people can look at that and think, yeah, yeah, that's good. Why aren't the government doing that? But at the same time, mm. it's quite a destructive attack on the government as well. So I, I agree, it's it's a much clever way of uh, doing uh, opposition. And, and, and in, in many ways, that's uh, that's a tone that perhaps journalists haven't 
worked out, but he's, he's better suited to a, to a functional opposition. And then Boris Johnson doing the reverse attack and saying he wanted cross-party consensus and to work with all the nations. And I just wonder what in practice that's going to mean and whether he's going to try and set out to neutralise Labour um, now that it is potentially newly reinvigorated by trying to bring senior Labour figures closer to him or even involve them in the discussions. I think Keir Starmer probably has to be quite careful to keep his distance and have that ability, yes, to be constructive, but also to oppose. Yes, I think I think that's right. But he, in many ways, he could learn from what uh, Nicola Sturgeon has, has, has done here in a very similar situation where she has been part of the discussion. She has uh, effectively gone along with the line, but has managed to sort of cleverly position herself as, as slightly separate, you know, publishing a, an exit strategy last week, which therefore putting pressure on uh, Boris Johnson's government to do the same. But actually, when you looked at it, a lot of what was in there was uh, pretty much what the Westminster government had said before, just set down in black and white and being perhaps a little more open about some of the things they're thinking about, but hadn't really decided on on doing. So uh, she has been quite clever in the way that she has gone along with the government in a constructive sense, but being able to to put pressure on them and establish a distinctive identity of herself. And yes, I think you know, Keir Starmer does have the potential to do the same. And uh, at the same time as avoiding that risk of just basically following everything the, the government does, which I don't think he'll end up doing. It struck me that both Nicola Sturgeon's plan and, and the one that Mark Drakeford, the uh, Labour First Minister in Wales, published, that struck me as being far more about politics really than about policy, given that they are involved in the Cobra meetings. I mean, the the fun of the Cobra meetings seems to be how soon after the Cobra meeting finishes does Nicola Sturgeon announce what they've agreed before uh, the UK government can. Um, so they're basically signed up to the strategy, and anything that they do on the side of that is is essentially playing to a domestic audience to show that they're trying to do something um, a little bit different. At, at what point, just finally, do you think we can judge? how this has gone because obviously there were some people already saying look we've got you know we're on course for more deaths than Italy or something ahead of Italy uh, where they were at this point um we, if if maybe we'd gone into lockdown earlier maybe if we'd done this maybe if we'd done that how far um Chris how far in the future do you think we need to be before we can definitively say well if we'd done this thing that would have actually made a material difference. I think it will actually take quite a long time. I mean, you know, we've talked about if we release too early, we'll get a second peak. So, you know, we won't really know whether that's going to happen until the autumn. Uh, and then even beyond that, if you want to compare us to other countries, you might want to look over the whole year and think, well, Chris Whitty talks about the idea of excess deaths, not just the number of people who died uh, with coronavirus and had that on their death certificate, but ones who perhaps have died that and not been spotted, plus these indirect deaths from, from the lockdown, the other things. And that, I think, measures he's the one he identifies as, as the key one. And that is going to take, you know, a, a year or more to to come through. And, you know, we will probably be picking over the, the, the bones of these few months for, for many years to come. But I don't think it's going to be obvious quickly at how we've done in terms of other countries and, and what that means Politically, I think it's just impossible to say at this point. And also, what's, I think you're absolutely right, Chris, but the fact that the election isn't for quite a while means even if the government at the moment has quite high poll ratings and Boris Johnson is respected as a leader uh, by the voters, there's a long time for the fallout of this to um, trickle down and for people to blame the government for either what happens economically, what happens to the health service, and then also to look back at the what the Conservative 
Party has done to the health service over the last 10 years. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a lot of potential for the Tories to be punished, even if in the short term it looks like they're riding high on the polls. Absolutely. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of scientific work to, you know, over the coming years to establish what happens, probably a lot of judicial work to sort of go back to the policy uh, decisions. But equally, there's a huge political battle over the, the narrative, which, you know, you saw the start of in Downing Street's response to the Sunday Times sort of in, investigation on this. They don't absolutely do not want it to be established fact that they were they were slow on this. And I think that is the battle. And do people come to accept that or, or, or not is going to come to define quite a lot of the government's future in the coming years. But it's just too soon to, to know, I think. And but I suppose politically, there's always the risk. And Boris Johnson knows this, having been an enthusiastic biographer of Winston Churchill, that you can win the war uh, and then lose the election that comes afterwards. The, and, and that he, however you judge uh, his um, handling of the crisis, to come the next election, we're still not due for three or four years yet, um, the public might be ready for a change and this might be a crisis which establishes in people's minds Keir Starmer as being an alternative prime minister in a way that Jeremy Corbyn just never managed to do that. I think it's a game changer either way. So, you know, you look at the Black Wednesday, you look at the 2008 economic crash, the governments of the day were punished furiously at the polls after that. But on the other hand, this is also a moment where the Tories... Uh, are able to throw off potentially quite a lot of their negative brand connotations. That Boris Johnson has quite literally wrapped himself up in the mantle of the NHS. They have poured billions and billions into, you know, saving the, the economy, effectively nationalising millions of jobs, paying people, you know, the party of the workers that they've always tried to be over many years. Now they actually are. So it, it's going to change, you know, the kaleidoscope has been shaken, as Tony Blair once said. It's, it's going to change politics. We're just not quite sure exactly what the upshot will be. Thanks so much to Chris and Rachel. Now, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, wherever you listen, on Acast, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. And the morning email will continue after I stop writing it with Esther Weber, podcast regular, uh, stepping up to write it more regularly. But for now, do keep in touch. Let us know of any particular questions or ideas that you want us to try and cover on the podcast. Keep in touch. Email redbox at thetimes.co.uk. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.